coming. Um, today we have the pleasure of welcoming Stuart Cunningham and David Craig, um, who have just published um, Social Media Entertainment in a New Industry at the Intersection of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Um, which came out on NYU Press. Um, Stuart Cunningham is Distinguished Professor of Media and Communication at Kingsland University of Technology. His most recent books include Media Economics with Terry Clue and Adam Swift, Screen Distribution and the New King Kongs of the Online World with John Silver, and Hidden Innovation, Policy, Industry, and the Creative Sector. David Craig is clinical associate professor at USC Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism and a fellow at the Peabody Media Center. Craig is also a veteran media producer and executive nominated for many Emmy Awards and responsible for over 30 critically acclaimed films, uh, television programs, and state productions. Turn it over to Professor Cunningham. Uh, thanks, Vivek, and, and thanks everyone for, for coming at this late hour. Um, this is, uh, this is a, a, a great opportunity for us to share with you the uh, process we went through to produce this book. We're claiming that social media entertainment, it's a term that we've coined, is, a, is, a new, is emerging new industry, a new creative, a new cultural industry that sits at the intersection of, of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. This is an industry that is composed of uh, mostly young creators creating content uh, and creating communities, uh, f fashioning, forming and maintaining communities uh, online on the major platforms and that they have been able to establish sufficient uh, sustainability to for us to begin to call this an emerging new industry. So I'm, I'm not going to myself go into a lot of those, um, those details. David's going to do more of that. I'm going to spend the first 15 minutes or so talking about the six major bodies of literature in the media communication fields and the social media fields that we are in dialogue with in this book. So that the first, so I'm just going to step through these and really dot point some of the key issues around them, uh, so that you, I hope, if you don't know the the actual uh, the detail of some of this material, you can nevertheless engage with and 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 perhaps want to debate some of the theoretical points that we're we're looking to to make. So the the first of these six is around the question of political economy. So as we, uh, as we have mapped this uh, emerging new industry um, that is composed of mostly amateur, digital native, individual creators, the, the obvious, one of the obvious things that, that, that it throws up immediately is the radical asymmetry of the power relations between the platforms and these individual creators. These platforms, as you well know, are some of the, the biggest and for a period of time were the top, the top five by, by capital expenditure companies in the world, were the, were the, were the major, uh, the fangs. 
Um, but despite the, the, the obvious point that there is a radical asymmetry, the, the argument we make is that this is not standard capitalist hegemony business as usual. It's certainly not entertainment business as usual. And, and let, me contra- let me say this in, in perhaps more concrete terms by saying, think of the two of the, mo- the more popular works that have come out, both of which have been extremely critical of uh, platforms' influence on the entertainment in, uh, business. So Michael Wolff's TV is the new TV, and Jonathan Taplin's uh, Move Fast and Break Things. What's interesting about these two books, and you may, have, you may have looked at either or both of them, is that while they both adopt an extremely critical position on the platforms, and this is before the current wave of, of regulatory and, and, and tech lash that we're, we're, ne- we're now fully in, that their positions are, in di- are di- diametrically opposed. Wolf argues that the, the challenge of, of the platforms is really a chimera. Television is the new television. And by standards that he invokes about quality, uh, television quality, all that we get with online content is um, commoditized traffic, is what he calls it. On the other hand, Jonathan Taplin takes an apocalyptic tone regarding the uh, intervention of the platforms using Zuckerberg's famous move fast and, 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 uh, and break things, that this is the end of US entertainment as we know it. So it can't, those two positions can't both be right, can they? I'm not sure, but they look like they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. What we argue in this book, looking closely at the emergence of this new industry, is that it's less a story of technological determinism, and here I'm quoting, uh, than of determined tech cultures pivoting repeatedly in search of sustainability. Now, of course you might want to say, well, they're pretty sustainable, aren't they? I mean, they have, they have liquidity issues that are where, where they're, uh, they're that are bigger than the GDP of many countries in the world. They they're vast um, hegemons, but in the air, in the specific area of entertainment, it is a story of constant pivoting, of looking for ways of engaging either professionally generated content on the one hand, user generated content on the other. Our story is a story of how user generated content has through, through processes of professionalisation and monetization of, com- of, of commercialization, come to be provisionally stable, provisionally sustainable. So looking closely at the, the detail of the emergence of this industry, what we see is an interdependent clash of cultures. The, the, the business culture of NoCal, of Silicon Valley, of permanent beta, permanent beta, of constant iteration, fail fast, fa- fail forward, pivot constantly, versus the SoCal, the Hollywood mass entertainment model of content is king, quality content is worth 
paying for IP control, etc. Those two, those two cultures have been at loggerheads with each other as the platforms find a way of achieving some kind of sustainability in the entertainment field where their ability to scale, for example, has often meant complete disaster for the business models of creators. So the, the clicks per thousand, uh, the, the no-cal uh, 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 the, the no-cal version of cost per, cost per thousand went from well over 20 CPM in the early days of this industry to $2 or less. The, the, the scale question destroyed the business model of um, first stage creators as an example of the problems of no-cal, so-cal. So, um, as I say, dot points only at this stage, but the history of the platforms in, uh, that we trace in this book is a history of constant pivoting in search of sustainability. And I think, and we, we argue that this is a, uh, shows a different picture of the, uh, the story that um, the standard political economy may give of the power of platforms. Second area is around creators. Now, creators, as we understand them, mostly amateur. They start out as mostly amateur. They start out very much, you know, classically in the bedroom, in the in the garage, and through the kinds of affordances that platforms uh, provide, and uh, the their ability and their, their talent and their commitment in forming communities and maintaining them, they become, they grow sustainable businesses. Now, the literature here is very much around the question of precariousness, the precariousness or the precarity of creative labour. And um, here, you know, important work has been done by David Hesmanhout, who's here with us tonight, um, Mark Banks, um, Toby Miller, a range of people working in the field of, of creative labour, uh, the, the contemporary work uh, of uh, Brooke Duffy um, is, is of particular significance, uh, we think, uh, the work of Alice Marwick. Um, precarious labour is a major part of the contemporary literature in, in, in media studies. And we engage with this very much around the question of, of course this industry that we're talking about is highly precarious. It's precarious for a whole range of reasons. Um, lack of experience, uh, all sorts of factors endogenous to the creator culture, sure, but, but mostly it's to do with the no-cal preparedness on the part of platforms to constantly tweak the algorithms that, by which the business sustainability of the creators is determined. And there are many examples of this, the adpocalypse of 2017 that is still being played out, um, which David might, might talk a little more about, has meant disaster for, for, 
thousands and thousands of creators, and it's still it's still playing out. The platforms are still uh, completely or very largely uninterested in the effects of these kinds of tweaks on creators. So the field is is precarious, but it's also empowered, and it's the it's the the comparison with Hollywood that makes us make that argument or allows us to make that argument in the sense that when you think about what the creator brings to the business proposition, uh, to, the, uh, to the deal, if you like, that is made with platforms is that they bring a lot more than the uh, ingenue, the wannabe <coughs> in Hollywood traditionally brings. They bring a community, a community that is of value to brands. And it's a community, as I'll touch on in a minute, is, uh, is a very important mediator between the creator's claims to value, particularly around questions of authenticity, and our brand's interests in them. So there's an empowerment aspect that is dramatically different from traditional Hollywood, as well as very much a precariousness. The third area is around intermediaries. And here, by the way, I'm, I'm just, I'm ticking through the six main chapters of the book. Um, we, we've structured this book, um, we think, in a teacherly way, uh, in the sense that this, this material, you know, is, we think, highly, highly teachable in the way that we've structured Book, but that's just a little plug on the on the side. Um, so intermediaries. One of the characteristics of of media studies is that there's been a, a real dearth in the humanities side of media studies in the question of media management. There's a whole literature around production studies, which tends to want to focus on below the line labour rather than above-the-line labour. Yes, above-the-line labour has been focused on with classic you know, theories going back for decades, like the auteur theory in film studies. But, but media management itself, as a discipline, exists very much to the side of media studies. And we've brought in and, and engaged with that literature to a significant extent in this in this work around intermediaries, intermediaries noting the, the relative dearth of it. Having said that, Mark Doyser's work obviously stands out, uh, as well as you know, an early example like Tom Kemper's um, uh, Hidden Talent and, and the, current, uh, the, the contemporary work of Violaine Roussel, uh, her work on Hollywood talent agencies that came out last year or the year before. So it's a, it's a uh, it's a small but growing field in media studies. And we engage with it around the question, I suppose, the, the, the question that, that might sound provocative, and that is that the intermediaries in this space have been more precarious, possibly, than the creators themselves in terms of the extent to which the whole media, uh, multi-channel network network that was brought into being, by and large, by the platforms in order to help them manage this explosion of, of vernacular content 
that that uh, they invited on, onto the platform, starting with YouTube, but then from 2010 or so onwards on, on, the, on multi-platforms. That, the, um, that these multi-channel networks that became also known as multi-platform networks have had to innovate and pivot even more rapidly than the platforms have because they have been under pressure from both above and below. In other words, from above, Google, Facebook, but particularly Google in terms of the, the 10 or 12 year history that we trace here, Google decides after having brought and encouraged these companies to form or to, or to uh, uh, perform the kinds of intermediary functions that, that they wanted in this burgeoning field, then decide, well, we're going to do it ourselves, And we're going to get into the direct dealing with uh, brands uh, industry uh, through the uh, advertising agency they set up um, uh, five or six years ago, the Zoo. So the, the intermediaries are under, have been under much greater pressure from above, from the platforms and from below, <coughs> because as soon as creators became um, relatively successful, they started to ask questions about what the cut, what the value of the cut that the MCN was taking from their uh, revenue, and many of them walked uh, from MCNs to other intermediaries, to talent agencies that were crowding into the field, and uh, or otherwise went it alone. So intermediaries, arguably more precarious in many ways, and certainly the data that we produce on the collapse of the so-called post-MCN era, the data on the collapse of the MCNs is telling. The, the fourth um, area is, it's really around the, the discourse that drives, the, some of the key discourses that drive social media entertainment. And this is really about the relationship between authenticity and commercialism. Uh, the literature in this field, um, and it's, it's, um, it's strong. Um, I've already mentioned Brooke Duffy's Not Getting Paid uh, to Do What You Love, um, Alice Marwick's Status up Update, um, where we, we think that Sarah Benet Weiser's um, uh, work on, um, on brand culture is particularly uh, powerful. Um, this is, this is work that tries to grapple with the, the really um, central questions of how does the creator establish an authentic persona while also shilling for brands and uh, surrounded by advertising. So how do you maintain an authentic uh, persona in the context of a, of a commercialising, a rapidly commercialising environment. And our argument, again, to, to essentially to dot point it, is to not think dualistically about authenticity and commercialism in constant. It's a zero-sum game between the authentic um, and the commercial. It's not a zero-sum game. It's actually it's a tripartite dynamic. 
because the community, as I mentioned earlier, the community that's brought into being by and maintained by the labour of the creator is the dynamic that enables... Well, firstly, it's a question of, of, of thinking of this in a temporal sense. The relationship between the creator and the community is prior to any brand involvement. What the brand is interested in is that established relationship. That's, the, that's where the value for them lies. So temporally, the, the creator-community relationship is prior to any brand relationship. But it also means that the community disciplines the creator if they look and begin to behave inauthentically in relation to brands. The creator can also discipline the brand if the, the can discipline the brand if the community is not happy with the relationship that's being established. They can appeal to the need to maintain that community relationship. In other words, in a tripartite relationship, you have brands disciplining creators. You've got creators disciplining brands. You've got the community disciplining creators. And you've got the community disciplining brands. And so in this tripartite and highly volatile space where many fail, and the work to succeed is, is constant, you've got a much more dynamic relationship than the dualism that um, critical thinking is often very subject to, and that is that the more commercial, the less authentic, and vice versa. So, uh, fifthly, we, we make an argument that it's, an, it's another take on the question of cultural progressivity in a commercialising environment. So we, we do a chapter on cultural politics of social media entertainers and we start this chapter by referring to the, uh, the controversy around the Oscars So White of 2016. 2016 Oscars were notorious for uh, no African-American... Um, um, a shortlisting uh, in the Oscars. And we use that as a sort of um, a hook to talk about uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of tests and, and market research that was going on at the time that suggested that over here in digital, in social media entertainment land, questions of cultural diversity were rated at, a, at, a, at an A level, while film was rated at a C, television at, uh, I think television was rated at a B, uh, and games were rated at a C. So digital, the, the space of digital was a space of greater diversity. And it makes sense, obviously. Very low barriers to entry, global in, 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 in dimension, you've got um, you've got a space that is much more, much more culturally, racially and gender diverse than in the established media. That doesn't sound surprising in some ways. 
but to to look at the at, uh, to look at some of the literature in this field is really to engage with the question of what's the relationship between activism and representation, activism and representation, and we 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 make the argument again. I'm dot pointing this. The argument that we make is that in a commercialising environment, creators must look to, they can't only talk to their own crowds. No matter how uh, gender, racial, racially, ethnically diverse these, these, uh, these practitioners are, nevertheless, they are working in an environment which still looks to maximise uh, viewers, audiences, community, community members. And so the, it's precisely because they work in a commercialising environment that you have um, a form of communicative practice that, on the one hand, comes from a base of greater diversity, but is looking to extend and communicate across boundaries. And uh, we, we, make, uh, we make the point that in this com that there, is a, there is an argument to be made that this is a safer space, this entertainment space, this emerging social media entertainment space is a safer space, relatively speaking, than in the infosphere where fake news and an echo chamber uh, problematics reign very strongly. Um, I think I've got to the sixth point. I hope I've counted right correctly. Right. It's the question of globalisation. Now, one of the one of the big questions here is how has this uh, the, the sustainability of this industry is based on the ability to be able to create small niches across global dimensions, across many many different uh, countries, parts of the world. The platforms. Uh, with the, the huge exception, of course, of China, the platforms are global, by and large. How, how, does, that, how does that work? Well, compare, compare these creators to the way in which Netflix uh, operates in 190 countries in the world. Netflix operates in 190 countries in the world, but it has to deal with legacy uh, contracts, um, in different jurisdictions throughout that, throughout the world. And so the Netflix catalogue is dramatically different in any country you go to in the world. Um, and that's, of course, one of the reasons why the originals, uh, the question of Netflix originals is there's so much money being spent on. But that's another question. Whereas here we've got content that travels without standard IP control. The question of IP is, is a big question that I won't, I'll only just very briefly touch on, which is really to say that the, the, the major argument that we put forward here uh, against a standard view of globalisation and the spread of further uh, US cultural hegemony is that the content travels without, uh, as original content, without IP control. It goes um, pretty much everywhere, subject to um, uh, uh, moral and religious uh, censorship in many in various countries from time to time. 
So the content is uh, is not standard Hollywood um, high IP control. IP comes in later in a creator's career where they're talking about um, uh, revenue streams around merchandising, around book deals, and, and so on and so forth. That's where standard IP deals are usually done. The original content that travels globally is done without IP control, and that's a dramatic difference. Now, I'm... It's over to you, Dave. All right. Thanks. Well, this will be a study in contrast. To start off, my Australian accent sucks. Um, and secondly, as you've all heard, I'm a Hollywood guy, so I have a crutch, which is visuals. But I'm going to speed through these so that we have time for, I think, snacks afterwards. So, you know, framed by these conceptual framework that cross many different fields and subfields of studies, we then set about doing what is essentially a comparative media industry studies. How is this a different industry from legacy media industries. And I won't go through this, but some of these topics and concerns, if any of you have taken mass comm or media industry studies, would find these rather familiar. But when we looked over at this industry, we, sound, we discovered stark distinctions. And again, these are fully framed by the frameworks and theories and in dialogue with the formidable work that we've already seen around, in and around these spaces. So when we looked at platforms, of course, it became abundantly clear that no two platforms operate the same, but there was an important distinction we needed to make um, that's probably obvious to those of you here, that digital platforms, SVOD platforms, over-the-top platforms are quite distinctively different from the way in which creators and the sort of platforms that creators were harnessing and using in order to build their value across these platforms. Um, we reference as well the work of Amanda Lotz's work around portals as a way to further differentiate um, uh, this from platforms. This, of course, is the first gen of social media platforms in and of themselves, quite distinct in the way in which they provide both features and services, but also affordances for creators, both commercial and um, communicative affordances. Our study centrally operated around YouTube because it seemed most similar to the sort of video content that we might have expected uh, to, to see a greater comparisons to traditional media, particularly streaming platforms. And here again, in the course of our history, we found YouTube not only constantly, iteratively changing its platform, its features, but also its services and affordances in the ways in which creators were able to operate across those platforms. In some ways, providing means for them to commercialize and better interact and engage with their communities and in other ways, taking that away. In many ways, responses to pressures from competition as well as regulatory concerns. But of course, we saw in the second iteration of what we call SME 2.0, the Platform 2.0 era, was the rise of not only mobile apps, but mobile apps that were centrally rooted around the social networking affordances, so in which content and social networking were more seamlessly integrated and in many ways, these were quickly co-opted by a lot of the platforms who rapidly pivoted to integrate. If they couldn't integrate it, they bought it. Um, so of course, we saw the acquisition of Vine and Periscope by Twitter, and YouTube has now launched a series of platforms. So now in this, uh, if you will, the, the 2.0 era, we also no longer have YouTube. We have YouTubes, which are a series of platforms that have risen and fallen, they've just now gotten rid of their game platform, which was meant to compete with Twitch because Twitch has itself pivoted 
to a multi-vertical platform of live streaming. But um, we've also seen the launch of attempts to compete with conventional professionally generated content, the likes of which are, include Netflix, YouTube Premium, Turned Red, which is now disappearing yet again as an example, Facebook Watch, which they argue is a social video site. I don't think any of us understand exactly what they mean by that concept, but um, we're not convinced yet that it has found its legs. And Twitter's acquisition of Periscope, even though it was five years later, they've only just now opted to integrate their live streaming platform onto the Twitter platform itself, a platform that is routinely thought of as being precarious and always on the verge of collapse, and then next year suddenly they have healthy returns. And of course, the live streaming question of platforms and the way in which creators are using these platforms has been one of uh, unique interest to us because as we'll talk about at very end, the rise of the Chinese social media entertainment industry, which we refer to as Wong Hong, has in many ways been distinguished by the success of literally hundreds of their live streaming platforms in terms of creators being able to commercialize community and, um, and value on their platforms. But in the West, it's really been a pretty uh, abject failure. You've had notorious scandals around live streaming as added features on top of traditional platforms, YouTube Live, Facebook Live. You've had Live.me, which is in fact a Chinese-owned live streaming platform, one of the most successful globally. And arguably the only real live streaming success here has been Amazon, who purchased Twitch for a billion dollars, Twitch, which was originally Justin.tv and was launched before even YouTube. Although they've still not managed to successfully integrate the live streaming features that the Twitchers are using on there alongside the e-commerce opportunities that their parent company affords. This is quite different, as we'll mention in the Chinese context. So as of course you've seen, this is a really old map, um, the, the scale and speed with which social platforms have emerged have in many ways fostered the firstborn global social media entertainment industry relative to the way in which most other media industries have operated amongst, amongst national or regional boundaries, with obvious exception of this, which is just a tip of the iceberg here in terms of their very competitive platform. But the crux of what we wound up looking at was comparative understandings of how a creator is different from traditional media talent. And media talent being both above and below the line, both um, on the set and in the, in the management suites. And of course, the first thing we discovered is none of us have figured out a single name <laughs> to describe this. And we're still having these debates, not only here, but around the world. And we're even having them in China, even though China has more uh, advanced, nomin nominally acknowledged that they have what's called the Wang Hong culture and Wang Hong economy. We went with creators. Fortunately, many of the platforms have subsequently adopted the same title, which turned out to be in our favor, so we don't look quite as obsolete as you might have expected. Um, but it was clear to us that, yes, while it's true that many of the creators that we were speaking to could arguably be described as writer, producer, actor, director of some sort of conventions of media talent, it was more uh, vital that we understand how they differentiated themselves from traditional media talent. We started to understand that the vast swath of the creators that were succeeding in this place were born social natives. Not digital natives, but social natives in the sense that they understood how to harness social media in an intuitive way 
that quite truthfully wasn't anything that they were trained or taught how to do. They certainly weren't graduating with degrees in, in, in social media entertainment, but there's always hope, right? Um, and of course, they were fostering, in many ways, a brand, but the brand, more often than not, was something that they themselves control, controlled, owned, and <laughs> operated, and for the better part, were themselves as self-branding in the way that Alice Mark refers to, the way in which they are able to promote their lives, their interests, their fidelity to their community through their use of these platforms. <clears throat> One arguably could make the case, I'm sure it has been many times now, that effectively what they, aren't, they are not content creators in the sense that they're not commercializing intellectual property the way that we typically think of media talent doing, but rather they have managed to turn to pay, I mean, sorry, play into pay. They have managed to monetize the process itself of socialization on these platforms. It's no longer about creating content of a certain quality, it's rather create, creating quality expelling to support, particularly their fan communities. Yes, this is often a red flag for many people and this question of authenticity is quite the provocation and has been uh, often featured in a lot of numerous concerns and questions. Um, but to articulate here, our question wasn't are they authentic, but rather are they more authentic than traditional talent? And we would argue that a century's worth of celebrification of media talent has signaled to most audiences and fans that when they're hanging out with Lady Gaga on Snapchat or Instagram, they're not hanging out with Lady Gaga. But the presumption is that these creators are in fact interacting with them, not only interacting with them directly, but indirectly through the sort of communicative strategies that they engage in across these platforms. None of them were making Game of Thrones in their bedroom, nor did they aspire to. Whereas we naively assumed, because four years ago we didn't fully understand what we were getting into, that these were all people basically auditioning to break into Hollywood. In fact, we more often found the contrary, that they had little interest in going into Hollywood, which was in fact a lost leader. It was not necessarily a place that they were, uh, a career they're pursuing, more necessarily did they find much value in it. And a vital, set of practices that we found around creators was their circulation of both content and their practices across multiple platforms, referencing the work by Jenkins and Ford and Green around spreadable media. The fact is, is they understand not only how to, any single platform can allow them to engage and aggregate a fan community, but across the platforms, many different types of content, practices, communicative, engagement and, in, and uh, interactivity. Yes, they are not only harnessing the data that the platforms make available to them, although with limitations, as we know, platforms are hardly transparent, but as members of platforms and where those platforms do provide that data, they are able to then understand and how to use that data to better maximize their brand strategy and their creator strategy. But it's important to realize they're also multi-platform and therefore they're interested in understanding the way in which their community is engaging them across multiple spaces. Perhaps the most provocative creator practice that we encountered, and this speaks directly to our colleagues sitting here today around relational labor, is that in numerous instances what we found was it was less about the 
the design and development and circulation of the content that they created, whether it was photos on Instagram or music on Spotify or podcasts on download or, um, of course, videos or posts or tweets. It was up to half of their week was spent in doing the very non-scalable practices of engaging their community below the frame on other platforms. So it was liking, sharing, curating, reading, commenting, sometimes deleting, and collaborating with their fan community across these platforms that we found was a vast distinction and certainly a stark distinction from anything we've seen in traditional media. So whereas we came into this thinking these were content creators, what they more often than not are creating is in fact communities that can be commodified and in ways that are both at simultaneously commercial and cultural practices, again, hearkening the work of Benoit Weiser around brand culture. When we went to look at content, more distinctions emerged. More often than not, we found them engaging in what, for lack of a better word, you might call social content. So it wasn't just simply movies or TV shows or animation and live action or reality and, and scripted. It was, um, sorry, varying uh, new forms of social media content. Vlogging being one of the most distinctive qualities. Tweets signals and signifies obviously something quite different from texting or sending a letter. Uh, live streaming was, is perhaps the most distinctively different type of content from what one typically might see in traditional media. Even references to traditional media like the term stories, well at the end of the day Instagram stories and Snapchat stories are really just short form um, snippets of unedited time that they're able to post in a conjunction with their other type forms of modular content creation. Memes, GIFs, Snaps, Chats, all of this proliferation of new genres, if you will, of content creation was more social in nature than it was IP in intent. This led to attempts to better understand what were the classifications and the taxonomies of social media content that were most successful in this space. And there, there were a number of uh, verticals that we canvas in a chapter of the book, but some that stood out obviously with great distinction was the gameplay, the let's play vertical, which in and of itself is already a very broad category because you have both um, instructional let's play videos, but you also have comedic commentary. Um, and of course the DIY category, which is expansive, it covers everything from the makeup, lifestyle um, category to perhaps the most problematic, if not the most curious of uh, DIY categories, which is the unboxing category, which is one we've actually studied in some other work in addition to our book. Even when we looked at traditional types of media content like music, what we quickly discovered is that these creators were harnessing the platforms and creative musicians in particular were harnessing these platforms in order to facilitate their new forms of music, music that would otherwise never have found means for distribution through traditional music labels. So of course there was the extraordinary expansive rise of music that doesn't require any instruments at all, which is acapella music which has been hugely successful and very profitable for quite a number of creative musicians in this space. 
but also new types of music that you might otherwise never have expected to hear, new forms of hybridic sounds, and we've just been looking at um, indigenous Australian music creators um, bringing new forms of music to bear. But of course, the most prominent and perhaps the most problematic of verticals in this space are those people for whom we haven't quite figured out what it is they do in terms of talent. Um, there was a great interview, uh, a fascinating interview that 60 Minutes did with um, Kim K. let's leave it at that, um, where he literally pointedly says, a lot of creators sing, they tell jokes, what do you do? To which she responded, I think it takes some talent to get people to want to hang out and spend time with you and support you. To which the interviewer said, um, well, your brand is worth over $100 million. And she responded, well, I think that takes some talent. So if nothing else, we can certainly uh, assert that, uh, you know, on the strength of their personality and ability to engage a rather extraordinarily large fan community, uh, they are also talented at converting that into forms of creator entrepreneurialism. And on that point, let's bring us to show me the money section. Um, in, in complete fairness, what we, when we tried to understand the size and scale of this industry macroeconomically, um, it's, it's not only a, a very difficult target, it's a rapidly moving target, but it's a, uh, an industry that operates across multi-sided markets that are national and multinational simultaneously, but as you'll soon see, also represent a whole suite, a whole portfolio of business models and revenue streams, which make a, attempts to try to map the scale and breadth of this industry even more difficult. That said, um, we saw a report by uh, a, a, a group called Recreate that generated called America's New Creative Economy, which just looked at US creators across about nine different platforms and determined that upwards of 10% of the US workforce is generating some form of revenue across social media platforms and nearing somewhere around $7 billion. That said, that report we find has loads of heroic assumptions, as the, as the authors openly admit, um, but also some huge limitations, not least of which we're talking about a global industry, not a national industry. But when we looked at it through the lens of the creators themselves, we saw a much greater breadth of entrepreneurialism and innovative business models in many ways designed to thwart and manage the risk that the platforms repeatedly <laughs> created for them by giving them opportunities and then taking them away. So on any platform itself, you would see some creators, particularly on YouTube, entering into partnership agreements and generating nominal amounts of money through programmatic advertising. But more often than not, this was very precarious. As we mentioned, the CPMs went from 25 to two in about two years. So for the better part of our interviews, very few people said that they were building a business solely off of YouTube programmatic advertising. That was immediately ruled out as a rather thin margin for, for um, sustainability. But we saw creators not only launching um, subscription sites across ancillary sites like Patreon, but now the platforms themselves provides an additional subscription revenue. Whether you're signed up for YouTube Premium, you get subscription fees. They now have a membership program on YouTube. Twitch has always off has offered subscription fees as well, which were in addition to any other forms of revenue. 
And then, of course, the virtual goods that platforms provide. This has been more readily available to live streaming creators on Twitch. And if we look at Chinese platforms and creators, they are doing extremely well in generating and fostering revenue from virtual goods. But as a reminder, creators are inherently multi-platform. And one of, if not the most lucrative revenue model that creators have been able to harness is branded content deals. But these are different from traditional product placement or in celebrity endorsement deals. It's referred to as influencer marketing. And it is a fascinating new form of marketing and advertising for which the creators themselves more often than not dictate the terms by which they're willing to even acknowledge the brand, product, or service, and have been able to secure far greater levels of payments than they had ever received from partnerships with the platforms themselves. But that's just one example. Again, they've been able to enter into deals with um, platforms that were built around this creator economy, like Patreon, that created subscription models, and of course, crowdfunding, which some of them have been doing around project-based. While it is true that a nominal number of creators have leveraged their success in legacy media, particularly those in, based in and around Hollywood, it is more often the case that these are lost leaders. Why a creator is less likely to spend eight hours on the set of a Disney Channel series playing a character that isn't even based on their own personality when their own community isn't going to buy cable to watch that one episode of that one series. So it looked good on paper, but in real life translation, it was a waste of their time and more often than not a waste of the legacy media's money. That said, we also found creators doing very well both in the transactional and download space of music downloads. But in particular, um, and this may have come and already gone, but we saw at least in 2016, uh, nearly a, a good portion of the New York Times bestsellers that year were written by creators. Um, the creator biographies, which you have to wonder had to have been pamphlets because there were only 20. How long could these biographies possibly be? And we have now, there are creators now who've had a series of books do very well on the bestseller list. But it's also a reminder the entertainment industry is not just a media industry. It's, a media, it's an industry in which media can be used to leverage value off media. And what we saw was creators able to secure pretty um, healthy revenue from tours, live events, festivals, various cons like VidCons and so forth. Um, some paid, some unpaid. Um, but um, appearances at clubs, showing up at cafes, live streaming and texting their GPS to get um, their fan community show up for their favorite chicken dish at their favorite chicken restaurant. Literally, creators have managed to leverage their way into getting paid to leave the house. And uh, um, that's probably more than I could say for most of us here tonight. And then finally, it's the ability of creators to also enter into a relatively traditional media game of merchandising and licensing. But what's really fascinating is the integration of platforms that allow creators to get into the e-commerce business. Now, this is not a prominent strategy here in the West because for the moment, the platforms are all competing against each other and not allowing as much integration. In fact, less frequently, they're venturing more into walled garden strategies. But in China, every creator has the means 
to connect their brand, their platforms, their channels to Taobao or Tmall stores, which are extremely remunerative and they're securing great deals of revenue. But as we mentioned, we also looked at media management and, and the discussion of intermediary organizations, organizations that exist between the platforms and the creators, between legacy media and Madison Avenue and, and marketing and advertising. Um, and we found some important, um, oops, sorry, found some pretty startling uh, evidence of great precarity in this space. How many of you have heard of Maker Studios? So Maker Studios was a company that didn't exist until 2010 and YouTube launched their YouTube channel initiatives. Within five years, they had not only grown to 65,000 creators that they supposedly managed and represented, but they leveraged that into selling the company to Disney for almost three quarters of a billion dollars. It's 2019, Maker Studios only exists as a brand within two tiers of Disney's digital media organization. It has proven far more ephemeral than any creator's business has. But there are a raft of other intermediary firms that have also emerged, whether it's third-party data companies like Social Blade or Tubular, whether it's advertising agencies and divisions of agencies catering to the growth of influencer marketing. Talent agencies now all across the board have divisions dedicated to representing creators and not just to leverage them into legacy media, but rather to broker all forms of cultural entrepreneurship around their ability to amass these massive communities. And the growth of organizations dedicated to both industry practices and community practices. So VidCon is unique in the sense that it is both an industry conference where you go to learn strategies for how to improve and grow your creator business, while you are also able to engage in real time with your community who are able to show up in the tens of thousands. And there's this organization that we've been tracking, the Internet Creators Guild, roughly a thousand creators who are now starting to venture into forms of labor organization, which we think is, is vital for them to continue to um, push back against both platform and state forms of governance. And um, we'll see how that pans out. And finally, very broadly, we looked at notions of community and more importantly around cultural politics of the social media entertainment space. As um, <clears throat> Stuart mentioned, um, we found some evidence of a great deal more of cultural progressivity. Many, much of this is rooted, yet again, I nod to, to Nancy's work around relational labor, is the fact that there's a uh, distinctive difference between a celebrity and their fan between talent and their viewers and audience, and between creators and communities who are in many ways mutually constitutive. Creators are members of their community and must exercise fidelity, fidelity to their community. Conversely, many members of their community are simultaneously creators. This is a very important distinction between the way in which talent and fans have, have operated. It is true that they're not only creating content and communities, but of course, representing culture as we've understood it more broadly. And that there is, we think, tremendous power as well as precarity and, and reasons to be concerned, but also opportunity and progressivity that we kept witnessing repeatedly in our research with creators. 
that was emerging on a global level. So we're no longer looking at the ability of national media industries to dictate forms of media culture, but rather that it's become um, more um, diverse, more multicultural, without trying in our attempts to canvas as many types of verticals of creators. We kept discovering that for more than a decade now, Asian Americans have been the leaders, not only the thought leaders, but the entrepreneurial leaders and the cultural leaders in this space. Whereas we're now just this past year celebrating the success of an Asian American movie now being a global success and a hit. For more than 10 years, Asian Americans in the creator space have been driving innovation and driving new forms of representation in many ways, not in response to the dearth of representation in legacy media, but quite truthfully, because their parents would have never allowed them to go into entertainment industry. So they had to confess, mom, dad, I made a million dollars on YouTube last year, and that made them businessmen. Um, and then, um, if only because, uh, without trying, even though I, I have spent 30 years as, an, as a queer activist, a queer media activist, it was of great, enormous satisfaction and fascination to see the way in which particularly queer youth of much greater in, intersectional forms of representation around the world were harnessing these platforms to not only foster and nurture viable, sustainable careers, but also to engage in declarations and affirmations of their identity, their values, and their interests. And finally, we reference the growth of, or the opportunities and the evidence of greater cultural progressivity. There were a number of instances where we saw creators had as much a commitment to not only representation, but pedagogy and diplomacy and activism, sometimes overt political activism. So much so that YouTube has leveraged this phenomenon to put a frame around it and identify dozens of creators around the world for whom civic entertainment, civic social media entertainment is at the core of their particular brand value. Um, but this event, these creators and their work has, is already occurring. YouTube is just simply putting a name on it in order to perhaps benefit from its, its value. And there we have our presentation. So well, I think we're opening up for questions, unless they're hard, and then, um, and then I'll send them the story. Oh, right. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I was reading about it and it, was like, it seemed like it was about this kind of uh, broader conflict between, you know, bloggers and that sort of uh, crowd versus YouTube, which was trying to make its platform more respectable or what they consider respectable and therefore more advertiser friendly. And that also kind of goes back to the earlier thing with it they did where they had to, you know, like demonetize. They're always juggling, like, should we demonetize these things? Once the advertisers found out what they were funding, then, and then, then, then comment for this complaint. So basically, I just want to um, ask for your perspective on this and, and like how this, how do you see this conflict kind of playing out? Well, um, 
I think this is a reaffirmation of the sort of arguments that we're making in the book, is that there's precariousness that permeates throughout this entire ecology. And in this instance, this was a, an example of how YouTube had once used this annual year of end of the year video to celebrate creators in many ways as an appeal to creators to affirm, look, hey, we love you, we respect you, we like what you're doing. Only last year, a lot of creators pissed off the platform and contributed to what has been this emerging tech clash to platforms, which they then went about in, uh, not only uh, implementing a number of filtering systems and demonetization practices and a lot of public kind of chastisement around these creators, but they eliminated some of those creators from their end of the year video and worse, they threw in Hollywood stars who are now starting to get into this game. So people like Will Smith, who've managed to then bring in a whole slew of social media entertainment experts to basically say, how do you turn yourself from a Hollywood star into a creator? He's been very successful at this in the past year, basically having a team of people trailing him and putting him in front of the camera to broach and break with his persona. Um, so the creators looked at this no longer as an opportunity to again, foster and nurture this communal sense of, hey, we're all in this together and the platform sees us as a valuable stakeholder in what they do, to suddenly these glaring omissions and additions that suggest, oh, the platform's trying yet again to pivot to and cater to a larger sense of, of you know, civic or high-minded or even Hollywood celebrity. And that's not what built that platform. It's the work of these creators and what they've managed to do to leverage their appeal to their communities that have, in fact, made most of these platforms more viable than they otherwise might have been, certainly if they were based on professional generated or IP kind of content. Can I follow up with that? Uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, what, you, what you ended with, uh, it seems like they wanna, they're afraid that this might turn into another kind of uh, star system, like in the Hollywood star system back in the, in the 20th, early 20th century. They, the creators, or the, who's so, afraid? Uh, YouTube, YouTube might decide to like, you know, curate things and, and promote certain stars, you know, the respectable crowd, and, and set certain terms and everything like that, whether, whereas they prefer like this kind of wild west, um, you know, content uh, creation. And I mean, we're talking about some of the most popular people on YouTube who are left out of YouTube in favor of like Will Smith. Right. Um, and I think there's this fear that, that YouTube is kind of playing that route of, you know, becoming the, of setting the terms and kind of organizing this, this thing. In many ways, that platform, but all the platforms, continuously engage in these paradoxical kind of management practices where literally from one year to the next, they're all in on their native creators and promoting and helping nurture and foster them because they've been, you know, outflanked by other platforms around traditional Hollywood celebrity and content. But then conversely, they're anxious about the fact they can't manage their creators. They can't always dictate what the creators do on the platforms. They don't control these creators. So if they can then appear to be, this is the old Oscar play, right? You know, in the, in the wake of the Fatty Arbuckle scandals, they went and launched the Academy Awards to give greater credibility and to, and, you know, in many ways, overcome this huge public, you know, debacle around this industry. YouTube, in many ways, is trying to navigate these things. And repeatedly, they throw their own creators under the bus and omit them from things like this, introduce the, uh, uh, Stuart mentioned the adpocalypse. How many of you have heard of the adpocalypse? All right, so I see a lot of nodding heads. For those who don't know, 
In the wake of critiques of the platform, YouTube in this instance, um, generated particularly by legacy media, but legitimate critiques of advertising in front of highly controversial, if not uh, you know, grotesquely inappropriate content, they introduced a filtering system that said if you want to monetize your content, you must first establish in what category your content belongs. And there were certain categories that were deemed not brand safe. So for example, if you were an LGBTQ creator, you had to check off the sexual content category. And that immediately shut down any monetization for your content, even if your content had nothing to do with sexual behavior and had more to do with affirmations of identity and so forth. Even some hysterical things like um, game players who were playing, is it uh, Assassin's Creed? Yeah. Well, you can't have Assassin in your title. It's not their title, but as soon as that was posted and hashtagged, they were demonetized and shut down. So these filtering systems were implemented in response to critiques rightfully of the platform, but at the expense of the very creators who've helped continue to bring value, communities, com a representation, and new forms of, of, of identities to this platform. So as uh, scholars and sort of experts wrestling with the evolution of social media entertainment and sort of, how, how do you guys imagine this industry maturing? Like what does a mature version of these platforms look like? How will it function? How will these platforms that are right now sort of whiplashing between poles, what would the center point or what would the, their stable position actually look like? Uh, <laughs> uh, impossible to say. Uh, one of the things that we've done recently, we, we ended uh, a paper that we'd done recently with a, a, a vision that Jack Conti, the guy who runs Patreon, uh, Patreon's become a very important platform for, for creators because crowd, crowdfunding has uh, grown and grown as, as, as an important um, non-commercial uh, revenue stream. And Conti asked the question, what, what will creators look like? What will this creator industry look like in, 20, you know, in 10 years' time, in 2028? And um, some of this is just, um, you know, we wish for a better world uh, sort of stuff, um, you know, a, a more kumbaya kind of world. But some of it's like hardcore um, around questions of labour organisation recognition of this as a genuine industry. Um, the regulatory, the tech lash that, that, that we're now fully you know, moving into is not necessarily a bad thing for creators. Um, but the problem is that so much of the, of, of, the, of the terms of engagement around the tech lash don't ever in, engage them, don't ever consider them. There's, there's lots of consideration of issues of privacy, issues of citizenship, issues of democracy, all of which are arguably founda you know, foundational and, and, and of great importance. But the, the sustainability of creator careers are rarely featured. So for Conti, it was very important to, to emphasise decent health care, um, uh, questions of, of, of insurance, um, other other kinds of indicators that this is a real industry. Um, so, I mean, that's the way that I would break those kinds of questions down. The ways in which 
uh, a little organisation like the Internet Creators Guild. Yes, it's a very small um, entity, but the people who set it up have had very powerful voices in this industry. So Hank Green, who was one of the founders of the Internet Creators Guild and one of the, the you know the thought leaders in the field, we 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 come back to you know come back to him again and again in the book. Um, Hank Green's article a few years ago calling out Facebook for their uh, it's a, an article that's called Facebook's Lies um, about the idea of you know what constitutes a, vid- uh, uh, a view anything they were supposed to measure it as anything 30 seconds long or longer they were measuring three seconds or longer and that in itself, along with a whole lot of other things, forced Facebook to change its policy. So the, the power of, uh, of thought leaders in this field um, and the ways in which the value of community is recognised by platforms, I think, more and more, uh, they give some hope that there will be stabilisation in in this industry and that as platforms become more, have to become more self-regulating, more efficiently self-regulating and also quite possibly externally regulated, that creator rights and and, and responsibilities of platforms to creators will will become part of that and that's the sort of some of the work that we're we're now doing, you know, subsequent to the book. That's the question we get at every one of these. Um, and to, to also add on to that, I would say you look back, and you look east. Back, by which I mean Michelle Hines is referring to media historiography as it's like nailing mercury. Well, we're nailing mercury in a microwave because it's moving so rapidly. This industry, and it's really hard to make any sort of forecasting. But if we look at the leg- the way in which legacy medias have evolved over the years, we've already seen an industry that has surpassed the VHS or the DVD industry, respectively. Although apples to oranges, um, but. Also, we encourage uh, perhaps looking east because the rise and success of China's competing social media entertainment industry, referred to as Wong Hong, evidences a much more accelerated and even more advanced way in which platforms are creating sustainable, viable opportunities. In many ways, this is quite distinctly different because it's a single market that is being driven very much by state interventionist policies that are meant to advocate for the transition to a digital economy. But, um, and while simultaneously curtailing certain very vital forms of cultural representation, we're all very, very keenly aware of that. But when we look at the proliferation competition of the platforms and the way in which they introduce many more advanced forms of remuneration, um, but also even policy in China around this creator industry, is very, very much a decade ahead, whereas it looks like most uh, policy we're witnessing here, and we're, we're just to plug doing a conference, a, a policy conference in DC on in May 29th after ICA, please come, um, to discuss the fact that creators aren't even entered in as stakeholders in the current de- debates around platform governance and regulation these days. They certainly are in the worst possible ways over in the EU, if you know anything about Article 13. But over in China, they're creating um, districts of cities where 
live streamers can live and work full time. They're fostering and subsidizing festivals and events that are populated by more people than the Olympics. They're um, subsidizing and accelerating the economic opportunities of these e-commerce platforms in order to further drive a consumer-based economy. And these creators sit at the very front edge of these forms of economic change and disruption. Um, how much do you go into that in the book in terms of China? And then the second part, do you, um, like what, what with the new, you know, Fox's uh, merger or selling, however you want to look at it, um, and then also sort of the Netflix rush that's happening right now, everybody trying to figure out how to compete with Netflix. Like, do you see what's happening in China or other models sort of impacting where things are going as everyone in the industry sort of realizes, like, okay, the people with cable are going, Clearly, like you know, getting older in the as that baby boomer generation, and these younger homes that don't even have TVs a lot of times. Like, do you see what do you see as sort of the I don't know potential, I guess, of some of these models that you're seeing in China, like being sort of the new the new model or the three point social media 3.0 as as Comcast sort of gives way to like Netflix. You you um. <laughs> Uh, you just pinched our title, SME 3.0. <laughs> there's a, at the end of the book, there's a, there's a, the, the concluding chapter says that the two things that are really driving a, a third stage in this history, this rapid history. SME 1, uh, 1.0 is basically 2005, 6 to 2010. 2 is basically 2.10 to a sort of like 17, which is when we finish the book. Um, what's been going on since then? Regu the new regulatory era, the, the tech lash, basically, and the, regu the regulatory push, which is obviously much more advanced in Europe than it is here, but it's coming. Um, and the other is the whole live streaming phenomenon and China. Um, and so what we, one of the things that we've done subsequent to the book is to try to work through um, one of the things that's structurally driving China's um, uh, more integrated um, and uh, more, at least economically dy dynamic system. And that is that when Amanda Lotz talks about platforms and portals, and she distinguishes, okay, a portal is is a Netflix, it's a Hulu, um, it's an Amazon Prime. Um, uh, a platform is what we recognise platforms to be. Okay, so one's um, basically internet distributed television, her term, and the other is you know, varieties of social media. In the West, despite all those attempts, and we haven't gone into those in detail, but we do in the book, of the, the, the platforms have often used user-generated content, aka social media entertainment, um, as a plan B when they have been unable to engage successfully pro 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 uh, professionally generated content. and and purveyors of it, okay? Um, whereas, and there's a long history of failure here. Um, Facebook, uh, Facebook Watch, Instagram <coughs> TV, um, uh, and, the, and varieties of YouTube. Um, whereas in China, we argue that the platform portal distinction is, is systematically blurred. Um, and, and so you, you have, platforms that are one-stop shops, that do UGC, PGC, they do online shopping, they do 
uh, banking, they do insurance. It's 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 a very very different e-commerce environment um, that it that has content, that has live stream, that has um, long long form uh, professional content, etc. etc. So you try you go and uh, navigate within equi, e uh, uh, and you the, the Baidu offer, um, own platform, and it's the platform that's most compared to Netflix, but it is way more than Netflix. And um, Ramon Lobato, who's published um, a book um, called Netflix Nations in January this year, um, uh, has the uh, a lovely line that says, in, in China, a, a pure play platform like Netflix might look a little boring. <laughs> um, because it's got, it's got one, one service. It's got one line of service. Um, and in China, that's just like not, not where it's at. And because I'm Hollywood, I have to also mention, we've just submitted a proposal for the Wong Hong book, which is really meant to be a comparative analysis between this industry and the Chinese industry because it is so vastly distinctively different and again, accelerating so quickly. The other point to make is that the number one social media platform in the last year has been a Chinese owned platform, which previously known as Musical.ly and now known as TikTok. And that is meant to align with their own version of TikTok known as Douyin, uh, which is one of a half dozen platforms that this company called ByteDance owns, considered the most successful tech startup in the last 12 months. So um, in the course of your research and looking at uh, the building of creator culture, um, I think about places like blackplanet.com and black Twitter and the early adaptation of technology, especially social media technology, by African American communities. And they seem to get co-opted, appropriated. Like Lily Singh's success has been critiqued so much. The YouTube star of like co-opting black culture in her book is like a boss. And especially black queer culture. I mean, how does that fit into this, this conversation? Or is that being acknowledged? And what happened to those creators? Mm. African-American or African? African-American. Okay. People were like, you know, like the social, like blackplanet.com was sort of one of the first very important space for, they weren't even called creators then, but for community online. And, you know, before we say, you know, black, like academic Twitter, this Twitter, there's always this notion of black Twitter, so a very vibrant community or, or early adapters of technology and social media. I'm just curious if that, you know, registers in this conversation. And it seems like so a lot of these social creators that become famous, they somehow, some some of them, you know, I would say Lily Singh in particular, appropriate some of those, um, you know, cultures yep. in their own way. Yep. Yep. Oh, you're going to let me take that one? Thanks. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, again, um, while we've conducted now upwards of 250 interviews, not all creators, but platform executives and intermediaries, um, there was certainly a stark uh, distinction that we did not find as many uh, African-American creators willing to go on and be an interview with us. Um, the one exception is Akila Hughes, who's been um, hosting and working with us on, on a number of fronts. Um, but there are distinctions in platform practices and creator practices amongst different forms of racial and gendered and other forms of divides. And um, certainly African-Americans 
um, emerged in many ways about African American creators were actually more successful we found over on Twitter before they then migrated to other platforms. In many ways, they also, because Vine and its mobility allowed them to be successful on that platform as well. And then, of course, Twitter shut it down once creators started insisting that they get a piece of the action and they refused. Twitter wasn't in the business of entering into these partnerships. So it is a yet another example of the ways in which structural forms of inequality are existing across and throughout this society and culture. We haven't really addressed the cultural appropriation term because we kept seeing our topics in this book expand continuously. As you've seen, we've canvassed how many different fields and subfields and disciplines and theories and frameworks? If, if you don't like that framework, we've got another. No, but um, I, mean, yeah. I will mention what was interesting around the research that we did in South Africa, where we've done some interviews with diverse creators in that space. And, and, and similar to the ways in which we've done some uh, interviews with Arab and Muslim creators, is that um, they're... Um, uh, practices of building community and commercialization across these platforms share similar uh, continuities to the ways in which Western or white or YouTube or vlogger creators have, but also vast differentiation. And one of the more interesting interviews we had was the fact that many of the South African creators that we interviewed were not necessarily interested in trying to advance representations of South African culture in contestation to, the same with Arab and Muslim creators, to the um, ways in which they've been depicted throughout hegemonic legacy media representation, but rather they were trying to engage in representational strategies and commercial strategies to advocate for differences from their legacy national media regimes. So for example, Arab creators never see um, Arab media that represents their interests. Um, South African creators that we kept talking to kept saying, no, no, no we're tired of Nigerian pan-Africanism. That does not represent Southern African culture, and they were trying to advocate for um, that sort of community formation. So to be honest, there are an infinite number of gaps that will lead to hopefully many opportunities for you to fill, but at the same time, we also continuously find new forms of practices that we think are distinctive from the way in which legacy media industries have normatively subscribed or, or assigned certain form, forms of representation and cultural appropriation, said the Hollywood guy. Question? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, mine's a bit different, but I'm, I'm wondering if you have seen any uh, sparks of future success about uh, decentralized social uh, media uh, maybe in, uh, in the context of this tech clash and all. I know there are some attempts, there are some decentralized uh, social media networks, uh, not very successful so far, but maybe with the new blockchain, blockchain um, powered uh, financing tools, blah, blah. I don't know if, do you see any uh, success signs or in your Research. I know it's not the topic of your research, basically, but still, maybe you've seen some stuff going on here. Well, yeah, I, it's a, it's a very it's a legitimate question. It's it's not been our focus of, of our research because we've we've been um, quite deliberately focusing on this uh, on the major platforms and. 
the uh, the search for sustainable sustainable models of uh, cultural and commercial practice. Um, but it is, I, I suppose, one thing. I two things I'd say. One is that there's a lot of community, what we might call com, uh, call community media, on these platforms. I mean, there, you know, there are there are spaces where where highly localized, and I don't just mean spatially localized, but in terms of you know, very deliberate kinds of taste cultures and and practices. Um, the Creators for Change program that that is alluded to here uh, briefly. If you if you actually track who these Creators for Change are and what they're doing, they're often doing exactly what community development, decentralized community development engaging with a particular crisis in, uh, say, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the um, Rohingya refugees or? The, okay, so the Rohingya ref refugee crisis is one such example. But these creators for change, uh, they're, they're people spread all around the world doing particular things with particular communities. And I would, I would say, don't necessarily look outside the platforms first and foremost for decentralized activity. You can see them on the platforms as well. I think the other thing that I, I, I want to comment on is that, that that's a question that, that we're often asked and it's a, it's a legitimate question and, and sometimes accompanying it is the, the, the point, well, um, you know, the home of independent film is Vimeo. Um, why don't you talk about Vimeo? Well, Vimeo's um, basically been hollowed out um, and is now a service company. Um, the, the, uh, the kinds of sites that, that we can often point to for um, independent, you know, truly indie or decentralized practice um, are often e um, ephemeral. I would add that there's also uh, questions of migration um, to the next iteration of platform, as well as new platforms creating opportunities. So now Pinterest, LinkedIn, um, I don't know anyone using Tumblr anymore now that it's lost its cachet, shall we say? How's that for poetics? Um, but, um, but you know, the, the, as soon as your mom's on YouTube or Facebook, you're moving off, right? And so the adoption of Snapchat and now TikTok has been in many ways an evidence of a kind of decentralization. But you, again, vital to our discussion around platforms is, of course, network effects. And you can't necessarily go hide on a Reddit or an Imgur and then expect that you're going to then harness and aggregate and engage a community large enough to create a sustainable, viable business. And again, the decentralization would also apply to the multi-platformization practice. The fact is, is best quote, I think one of the best quotes we heard was, you don't build a mansion in someone else's backyard. And that applies not only to their commercial, but also their cultural practices. You should not. They almost intuitively understand and have never necessarily, you know, corralled themselves all solely on a single platform for all the reasons we've, we've mentioned. But also, as new platforms come along, they are quick to um, early adapters often in these spaces and helping then, in turn, driving value onto them. Uh, well, it's really important that somebody uh, maps this huge terrain and um, you know, you, you show you great expertise in 
can across the many different aspects of what you're calling social media entertainment. But I wonder if, if um, I wonder what you think about the idea that something might be lost in to quickly move into the idea that it's an industry um, rather than well, I don't know what mm. some kind of complex set of practices and institutions mm. that or industry doesn't quite yeah. capture it. And yeah. can, can I just yeah. say a little? Sure, of course. Um, the uh, I mean, I understand that you you know you need to present. Um, things in these uh, terms, not you just one does, I mean one needs to present a story, but that leads to a setting against that, potentially I, I, I think of a, a rather unified set of industries called legacy media industries and I, I, I feel a bit troubled by that that opposition, you know, that there were these legacy media industries that had these characteristics and then there's this what a new industry that kind of replaces it or adds to it or integrates with it I don't know which of those it's supposed to be in historical terms if you if you see what I mean um, uh, yeah so what Going to that question of how you define industry, given that you know that's where you started from, that this the sense that this is a new industry, um, you know, isn't it more protean than that really? Yeah, I think it. I, I think it is. I mean, we start. I, I, I don't disagree. Um, the partly it's about the story. Um, Partly it's about what we've done a lot more since we did this book, which is about the industrial relations questions that it raises. Because if you, if you don't hypostatize the object, then you don't gain policy traction. So you've got to reify, you know, you've got to reify the object if you want to talk about some, that object being ported into a space that uh, that is the object of policy attention, for example. So that's why, you know, data like the Recreate Coalition's data, which is full of holes, is nevertheless important data because it actually talks about actual numbers, like big numbers. <laughs> that and and if you have a look at the Recreate Coalition, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of advocates in this space. Some of them much more effective than others, and and some of them not really on point, in our opinion at all. Um, that's another conversation. But um, recreate breaks down. The biggest part of that report is a state by state breakdown of creator economy, state by state. So it's directed at Congress people. It's directed at representatives. Um, you want to know what's going on in your state? Have a look at this. So you know, it's a it's a it's a lobby document. It's, um, so th that's one. I mean, that's one point. I suppose that if you don't reify the object, then you, you you don't you don't talk policy language. But from a point of view of of the of the pr of the protean texture, yeah, of course, 
I mean, things are already changing. I mean, think about the Will Smith example. Um, there's already morphings and, and, uh, and, and blurrings going on. And so the Will Smith example is one concrete Western, in, the, in the West. Over here in, in the East, you've got a complete blurring of, that, of what looked like a hard and fast distinction, which we follow in the book between the, the so-called you know, the Lotzian portal and the platform. But we, 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 we use that to drive home the differences between Netflix and social media entertainment um, and, and say that social media entertainment is a more radical disruptor than anything that you'll ever see uh, come out of the, the portal land. Um, and already that is being upset by the Chinese example. So I, I agree, uh, David, I, I agree that it's much more protein and much more fungible than, than we've made out uh, from, the point, from, from the point of view of telling a story. <laughs> One last question. You mentioned Patreon, which is, of course, now in trouble because it turns out that this model of being part of the community and supporting the community is incompatible with the growth goals of venture capitalism. Um, and I'm wondering what your take is, having looked at creators in so many different genres on so many different platforms and so many different national contexts are about, well, what are your takeaways about what would be the most just and fair ways for creators to get revenue for the content they're creating? Mm. Um, well, I mean, it, it, just and fair um, is the language that I referred to before in, in response to David, that, that if, if, you, if, you want to take, if you want to take an advocacy position for uh, this, in, this industry, uh, then um, the language, the normative language of just and fair is entirely appropriate. Um, we've taken a descriptive rather than a normative uh, position on a lot of the analytical work that we've done in that, you know, what's going on? You know, what's the, you know, mapping the thing and I totally is, is a descriptive... That. I am, but I am asking a normative question. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, um, <laughs> you don't have to publish it. No, no, no. Um, so being recorded as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, throughout the talk, you sort of suggested that the fact that creators don't have a voice is problematic when this industry is articulated. Yes. Though you have in response to Dave just said, you know, well, if you want to be legible to policy. Yeah. And you know, certainly where I sit, that's a policy concern that I hold very dear. Is mm. is how how do we protect people who are providing these next seas of entertainment around which we're, yeah. we're forming communities. So uh, again, I this hope is, that you have some thoughts on how this can have lots of thoughts, but you have to buy us a beer first. I think. Well, but, I'm doing um, that already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, <laughs> in many ways, I think this, this project was very much shaped by the fact that while Stuart had started doing research in Australia, we rooted this basically in the context of what are YouTubers in LA doing and how is this just not another form of television? And in many ways, that's where we kept on discovering not only a vast, more complicated ecology around which there are distinctively different ways in which all of these components of the ecology emerge, but particularly around social entrepreneurialism. 
and the way in which these creators almost normatively embraced a portfolio of revenue streams in many ways understanding not only that there's profit to be gained from venturing into many different business models, but there's also risk management around those strategies. So to identify any singular revenue stream would, I think, be precarious to advocate for any sort of thing, especially from policy side. The platforms themselves are already rapidly introducing many of those same um, business models onto the platform. So YouTube just last year has launched its own version of Patreon on the platform, its own licensing model on top of the platform, its own subscription and membership model on top of the platform. They're all now venturing more towards a walled garden, one service fits all. The creators are not. Repeatedly, the creators understand you cannot be, uh, it would be very dangerous for you to try to insist or demand or secure or perceive that there's only one way in which you're going to make, create a sustainable career. Um, and, uh, and I think, again, this is another way in which it's vastly different. But I think a little bit of yours and David's question is, is you know, maybe framed a lot by my, 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 my background, but for so often the questions of what was legacy media was built around scarcity of distribution and control of IP. Neither one of those principles applied here. It was rather the ability to aggregate and engage a fan community that's willing to support you across platforms and through multiple revenue streams that seems to us as one of the most clear distinctions. And perhaps we may enter into the sixth edition of a certain book, perhaps. <laughs> um, but it's uh, certainly, at least as a provocation, this is both as a provocation but also around an advocacy position. We found ourselves in a position to advocate for policy concerns because we don't see these creators as fully aligned with the interest of legacy media, music, publishing, film, or TV, or um, interested necessarily in replicating those same types of practices and, 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 and income streams. Um, look, I'd, I'd throw one, one other thing in here, and that is um, not here in the States, but in many other countries, public funding is being engaged. Um, so the biggest that we've found is 45 million euros in, in, in Germany shifted from um, youth-oriented channels on ZDF and ARD, the two, the two main uh, broadcast channels, um, into online, into a, a program called Funk, F-U-N-K, which is German for television. But it, it's, um, it, it's online qual quality short-form content online. So 45 million euro to fund a major shift into where people are, you know, where the audiences are at, if you like, the, the communities are at. Um, that's, that's, that, that's a big deal. Um, and we talk about that in, in the book. Um, there are a number of smaller ones. One of the, the, the ones that we look at closely is um, a, the Skip Ahead program in, in Australia where uh, YouTubers and creators are engaged in a joint venture between Google and, and the, the major screen agency in, in experimenting with whether they want to go into that hybrid space between online and broadcast and, and how they would do that through, through longer form storytelling, for example. And, uh, 
one of my PhD students is studying that whole program in its four iterations and the extent to which some have and some haven't. So I know that's a long way from just and fair, but uh, the, one of the ways in which it should be shaped is public. Okay, what, what, are, what are the frames for public support in this? Um, in China, we've got you know, huge investment by provincial governments and local councils in this in these people. Um, but at the same time, you've got at a federal level, at the, at the, at the uh, national level, massive crackdowns uh, for, um, on social, around social morality. So, um, you know, just and fair there um, is, um, is very differently framed than it might be here. Thank you very much. Uh,